Welcome to Reliability Leader, a podcast about how leaders make organizations that create reliable technology. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm here today with Wayne Johnson from Soundside Partners. Uh, It's an advisory firm focusing on semiconductor industry. Hey, Wayne, how's it going? Hi, good morning, Adam. How are you today? Good. We just uh, have met in the recent past and uh, both with our design experience and semiconductor experience uh, really got into some good talks regarding some of the challenges with design in semiconductor. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, Wayne, this is an episode. Let me hit, let's come back to this. I'll hit record. I think people would enjoy hearing this. But why don't you first tell us a little bit about your firm? Yeah, certainly happy to do it. Um, as as most listeners might know, semiconductors are a pretty hot topic these days. It's it's hard to see a news cycle go by without the word semiconductor arising somewhere. And and so I founded Soundside Partners earlier this year to really capture uh, a bit of the momentum, if you will, in the semiconductor space. The way I talk about it often is if you, if you go back in time, two, three, maybe four years or so, the semiconductor industry was was so big. Um, and you know, if I'm standing in front of someone, I usually sort of make a hand gesture and show them a, a circle with my hand and the, the industry was this big. But if we if we look at it right now, then the industry is much, much bigger than that. And and I don't just mean organic growth of the companies that are making semiconductors. I mean that the groups and the organizations who are interested in semiconductors today, are much more numerous than they were just a few years ago. And that, that's attributable to COVID, among other things, uh, geopolitical tensions. These, these things have all led to many organizations that never really thought about semiconductors before to be acutely aware of them and very concerned about them. And so I saw a need for advisory services for those types of organizations to help support a very significantly expanding industry. Yeah, that's fantastic. <clears throat> that's I can imagine the how exciting all the different um, you know engagements you you've had and and we'll be having going forward. When did people couldn't see here, but when you said about this big, your hands like a typical semiconductor person went to about two hundred millimeters, and I pointed to the wafer, two hundred millimeter wafer over my shoulder. For those who've done video calls with me, you can see there, and it it's implanted and does this beautiful spectrum of colors, but. Um, yeah, it is unreal how it's grown. I mean, and we all saw the desperation and need with the, you know, chip shortage, you know, during COVID and just, you know, how the how delicate that, uh, you know, that chain was uh, of supply for for chips. But um, yeah, I thought a really interesting part of our conversation is we were talking about, you know, how do you measure and systematically improve reliability, you know, with different devices. So why don't we pick a device that, you know, maybe you had an interesting experience with, with regard to improving robustness or solving a problem and improving it. What's, what's one you'd like to talk about that you think our audience could understand? Well, I, I think a lot of, uh, I, a lot of people, when they think about semiconductors, they think about silicon because it's the foundation upon which the semiconductor industry is built. But increasingly these days, there, there's a new group of semiconductor materials that are hugely important for some of the, the huge macro trends of the future. And, and a lot of those are 
compound semiconductor materials, compound meaning more than one element. So um, you know, silicon is an elemental semiconductor. Compound semiconductor might be something like gallium arsenide or indium phosphide or silicon carbide or gallium nitride. And, and so I don't know if you've spoken a lot on previous podcasts, Adam, about some compound semiconductor materials, but one that I think is particularly interesting is, is gallium nitride. And uh, I've spent a great deal of time in that space. GAN is GAN, as it's uh, known sometimes, gallium nitrides, shortened for GAN, is is the material that led to the blue LED many years ago. Um, so when these blue LEDs started popping up in the, the backlight of your automobile, or or as the uh, the light device in the in the, the white LED light bulbs, right, that's gallium nitride. But it can also be used for electronic devices and things like RF infrastructure for base stations or for power electronics for making the little power converter that sits on your laptop cable to make that a lot smaller. So there are a lot of really interesting reliability uh, physics in gallium nitride and all compound semiconductors that, that differ. Before, from- before we go further into that, I, maybe for our audience, we'll just help them understand why that's significant, the difference between the silicon and, and gallium nitride. For those who aren't as familiar with it as, as you and I are, you know, typically with a, you know, a, a wafer, most microchips you have are silicon, pure silicon that then gets doped with other materials like arsenic and, and boron. And that's what makes the switchable effectively microtransistors in the product is changing its properties through that. And what you're talking about is this exciting new evolution of using the different base where it's not the pure silicon and it already has different base elemental properties. And that's the gallium nitride chips. Yeah, well well said, Adam. And so what, what you're really talking about is a material that mother nature allows to do things that silicon can't do. And so Silicon is an amazing material, and it's been engineered over many decades to service a, a great range of needs and applications. But Mother Nature usually wins, and uh, and so gallium nitride and some of the other materials that I mentioned have the ability to do things that are very very difficult, if not impossible, to do in silicon, such as emit light, for instance, or to sustain extremely high voltages, or to transmit at extremely high frequencies. And that's why you would choose to use something like gallium nitride as opposed to silicon for those types of applications. Okay, great. Actually, you taught me a little bit something there. I didn't know some of the reasons why, like what it, what the properties were that it gave beyond the silicon. So now I know that. Okay. Yeah. And and from a reliability perspective, it's, it's extremely rich area as well, partly because the, the material physics are entirely different. The device constructs are in many cases different. And, and frankly, it just hasn't been researched for as long as, as silicon has, of course, silicon being around for, for many decades. And so you, you have some very interesting uh, interactions, let's say, between device operation, device design, and even uh, materials construction of these types of devices that, that lead to a very rich and interesting area to study and to optimize uh, things like design for reliability. So let's talk about a specific uh, reliability example where this was at, is advantageous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. It, I'll, I'll go back several years in time when people really first started looking at gallium nitride for electronic device applications. There's, uh, there's a layer in these gallium nitride devices um, that's actually not gallium nitride, but it's an alloy and it's uh, aluminum gallium nitride. So it's not two elements, now it's three elements. We're, we're getting more complicated here. 
And so as you uh, as you form this aluminum, is, is, is it aluminum or alumina? Is it is it the the ceramic or the? No, it's it's uh, aluminum and gallium um, and and nitrogen all sort of combined together okay. in a certain way to make a what's called a ternary alloy. Ternary meaning there are three elements in the alloy. So so there's this there's this aluminum gallium nitride um, layer, it's like a crystal in the semiconductor that's used uh, and. And people quickly realize that, hey, the more aluminum I put into this layer, the better the device is. Oh, this is great. Let's just keep putting more and more and more aluminum into it. <laughs> That's super interesting, actually, because you would think that that would bend it so far in the direction of conductive that you, but I guess that makes sense with what you were saying with higher voltages and stuff like that, because you're reducing resistance, the base resistance of it. What people were seeing was I just keep getting more and more current out of this device as yeah. I keep putting more aluminum in there. This is great. Let's just keep doing it, right? But ultimately, these devices started failing, and people said, "Wait a minute, what's what's happening? Why is it failing?" And and it was a very interesting uh, physical phenomenon that was taking place. There, there's something in these materials called um, piezoelectricity. Um, piezoelectric materials are materials that, when they are subject to a voltage, they actually mechanically change yeah. their shape and size. They deform mechanically. As a, as a result of an applied voltage. Yeah, people experience these every day, like a lot of accelerometers or pressure your pressure sensors, actually even probably your bathroom scale probably has that in it, right? A piezo type pressure sensor. And yeah, which is like such a crazy property because they even make actuators, small actuators based in it. Like, I can't believe that. That's right. And there are lots of them even in your mobile phone, everything that you're carrying around yeah. in your pocket every day, the, there are, are RF filters in your mobile phone that are based on uh, you know similar types of technology as well. But um, you know, what what was happening here, and people people researched this for a while to figure it out, was that this is what's called an inverse piezoelectric effect. And so what you had in this device, it's an electronic device, gallium nitride device, as it was operating and as more and more and more current was flowing through it at these higher aluminum content levels, the, the higher current levels were actually causing the crystal. If you go down to the atomic level, down, down to elements uh, in the atomic lattice, these things were actually starting to deform during device operation, and that's what was causing the uh, the failure in the uh, the gallium nitride electronic device. And so ultimately, it's it's not such a good thing to put as much aluminum into the device as you can, because although you get more and more current, at some point you reach a limit where the device reaches an inverse piezoelectric failure mode, and uh, and and you don't want to go there because you can't make a reliable transistor anymore. So it's a really interesting physical phenomenon that you see in that material system that you don't see in, let's say, traditional CMOS uh, with silicon or, or, or similar uh, elemental uh, compounds, elemental semiconductor devices. So why not, why not implant the aluminum in the areas you want, like make it, you know, make it an eye, you know, put, make a plasma, put it in a plasma and then implant it so that you have it just where you want. Why, what's the benefit of having it be in the whole base material? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the short answer is that you can't get the implanted species, whether it's aluminum or, or really most anything else, to activate and to locate in the right place on the crystal lattice in this material system. Uh, it's a very high temperature material system. Diffusion doesn't happen quite as readily as it does in silicon. And so you can implant something but it just sits on interstitial sites and it doesn't locate on the lattice as it would need to, to be electronically active. Oh, because of its ability to run such high temperature, like an annealing process still wouldn't help it bond or, or set in. 
That's you have to be at uh, well over a thousand degrees. And at yeah. some point you reach a, a trade-off between whether you could actually get to a high enough temperature to activate it yeah. at those same temperatures, you're actually going to start decomposing certain elements of the material itself. So there's a, there's a thermal trade-off at play there. That is interesting working with high strength elements. It's really funny, actually. Today, I just posted, you know, my I do my atom bombs, my little 60 second videos. I put them on LinkedIn and Instagram of just like something that happened engineering wise. And I have for Alphabet Engine, um, I designed the air intake system. That's a fuel injection system I'm making for an old Porsche, kind of as a project to demonstrate some different challenges. And I came across such a weird one. The, the 3D printed material I did is uh, nylon with carbon fiber fill in the 3d print and the funny thing was i realized i can't do any I, there's an o-ring sealing surface and i can't use an exacto knife to clean up the edges because the carbon fiber is so strong <laughs> the blade won't cut it right so there's that like that is actually a pretty common thing as we get into materials that have these amazing properties it becomes harder and harder to manufacture which is where variabilities can come in right that that can induce reliability issues which is a question i'm about to come to for you is you know, one definition of reliability is how does the variability of manufacturing use and environment affect product performance, right? Because we assume that our nominal design works. So with these challenges, with the super, you know, strong material, um, you know, one, it's constraining you to make it in the base crystal structure. But are you finding variabilities with the difficulty of making these mixed, you know, base materials? Yeah, these materials are, are much more challenging, and it's it's not just about uh, the layout, for instance. You typically think about reliability, you think about design rules and design rule violations and causing uh, you know, hot areas in a transistor or, or a, any sort of an integrated circuit. And, and so for these, let's call them slightly less mature material systems, um, you know, they're still manufacturable, they're still products in, in, in the market today from lots of these compound semiconductors, but you, you really have to dive one level deeper to be able to get at um, some of the variability that you mentioned, Adam. And so it's certainly about layout, it's certainly about design, but it's about how those uh, layouts and designs interact with processing and all the processing steps used to fabricate the transistors, whether those are lithography steps or metal steps or annealing or implant. And then even the, the materials themselves, the underlying materials, um, most people may know that semiconductor devices are, are made on, on wafers, little you know, circular uh, disks of material that are ultimately uh, processed through wafer fabs and ultimately singulated and made into, into smaller chips. But, but these materials are, are highly specialized films. And, and these materials, you know, we talked a bit earlier about some of the alloying and the elements and implanting, but, but there's even a degree of subtlety that goes beyond that. And, and those are defect states in those materials. Um, and some of those you can see, and some of them you actually can't see, you can't even measure them. There are no, there are no techniques to go in and measure them because it might be uh, an element that's supposed to be in the material, but it's just in the wrong place. Or it might so be- So wait, how, how do you know that it's not, it doesn't work? You have to wait till the finish, you have the finished chip and then you find out it can't satisfy a requirement? That's right, that's right. And uh. so you might see something where your device is operating extremely well um, and, and DC. So if you're operating it, you're just biasing up at, at for standard DC operation, it might work well. But if you go to, let's say, higher voltage, something doesn't look right. Or if you modulate the device with an, an RF signal, a high frequency signal, something doesn't look right. And, and what's physically happening in many cases is that the, the, the current that should be there, the carriers that should exist in the transistor 
are actually getting trapped by electronic states. And so you're not getting the performance from the device that you expect to get. And it's because all of these electrons that should be contributing to the current carrying capability of the transistor are actually getting trapped uh, in the material at some of these defect states. And so that's uh, you know, a significant challenge uh, for the materials. It, it can be overcome. But again, it just adds, uh, let's say, interest to the uh, evaluation and the uh, failure analysis when these types of phenomena appear at the device and the circuit level. Actually, do you know what's interesting? So you're talking about this journey of new technology and you know maturing it to be very reliable. And this is something that happens a lot in industry and happens faster and faster now. So let's go back in time for a second. This journey led everybody to pure silicon, right? Because the first transistor was a uh, germanium, right? It was that right. little weird triangle and, and, and with the paper clip. And the reason why I know is I just put that in my new book. Uh, which, okay, a book plug, uh, Devastate the Competition, How to Take Market Share Through Robust Design will be coming out in December. Um, and, you know, one of the things I talked about was actually the evolution of transistors and how they went from the first one that was this crazy little, like it was probably about three inches tall and and it was this germanium crystal. And then how fast, how unbelievably fast we came to the silicon, you know, crystals. And I end up finishing the evolution showing that in the 1990s, there was a Game Boy you know, little handheld video game that got blown up in a bunker in Iraq, you know, a soldier had it and it works fine. And they actually, Nintendo displays it in their, I think, New York City store. Um, so um, what do you, what do you think like that process is, which now we're going to repeat after we got through many years making this insanely mature silicon version, that germanium transistor to the silicon, what what do you believe some of the steps were that made that happen? And that yeah. basically, it sounds like you're describing, and this is totally new to me, that we're going to be repeating that. It, it's, a, it's a great uh, analogy that you bring up there, because you're absolutely right. The first transistor was germanium. And, and so the real question is, why did we switch to silicon in the first place, right? Why did we jump from germanium to silicon? And the answer is, is interesting. It's actually not because of silicon as much as it is because of silicon dioxide. And so if you make a silicon device, almost any silicon device in the world today, it's, it's silicon, but on top of the silicon, there's a thin layer of what's called silicon dioxide. It's an insulator material. And, and the reason that silicon dioxide is so interesting and important is it essentially passivates or terminates the surface of the silicon in a very, very controlled way. And so you can make a device and you don't have any of these uh, what are called surface states. These are essentially defects, just like I was describing a second ago uh, in gallium nitride. And so silicon dioxide creates this uh, really, really pristine surface on top of the silicon and you can make a transistor that's very reliable, very repeatable. And, and, and germanium doesn't have a comparable native oxide. So, so germanium oxide just doesn't work as well over germanium as silicon dioxide works over silicon. And that's the fundamental reason why integrated circuits today are built in silicon as opposed to germanium. You could make them in germanium, that's fine, but you just can't get a native oxide, as it's called, that operates as well, that has a low interface state density and therefore has the reliable, stable device operation as you can in silicon. That's why we transition. So a lot of these materials level investigations and these materials level phenomena that I'm describing in some of the compound semiconductor materials 
are exactly analogous to what was happening in that transition from germanium to silicon and early integrated circuits many, many years ago. And so we're going through a lot of that right now. People are looking at what's the best oxide to terminate gallium nitride surfaces? What's, what's the best way to terminate silicon carbide surfaces? How do we engineer the materials and the defect densities and the trap states and things to create reliable reproducible devices in these compound semiconductors because we all know they have these really interesting properties and these advantages we have to be able to harness the materials to realize those so with the you know you're describing that you know with the silicon you have the silicon oxide layer on top which you know creates that insulative layer how is that put on and i have a very specific reason why i'm asking that it's it's a thermal oxidation process and so so actually you, you just expose the silicon um, substrate to an oxygen containing environment and it, and it essentially just grows and self-terminates on silicon so comparatively uh with the germanium how would you make that insulating layer on top you would you would try to make it the same way but the it just doesn't form uh as nice of a surface the the the, the surface states as they're called the dangling bonds at the germanium surface aren't tied up by the oxide in the same way as they are in silicon. And what that leads to is you start to form a transistor and do all the steps necessary to make your integrated circuit. And then you have these uh, these energy states, if you will, that capture carriers and, and lead to some of the uh, charge issues that I described for the GAN device earlier. So it was that it's possible, but a very difficult manufacturing process to have occur where it's consistent and you can trust it. So this design evolution effectively reduced the manufacturing variability, not through inspection, but through a, a process that by default creates a very consistent performance factor. That's correct. Absolutely. But that's a really interesting, you know, that's a very interesting strategy for reliability, right? It's the, there's, you know, with regard, like I said, those three elements of variability causing performance variability with, you know, core concept of reliability. The manufacturing one, right? You have two. You have, you have two things you can do. If you picture, you know that failure rates are. You have your design, the natural variability of a feature in the design's a bell curve, and you have the natural variability of the performance factor you need. Those two curves where they overlap with the weakest version and the most difficult case is your. You could say is your failure rate. So with two bell curves to reduce the overlap, there's two strategies, right? Move the means farther apart. Or reduce the standard deviation in, in you know in one of them, and um, so that's it, it's really interesting that if you stuck with germanium, you'd have to try to reduce that standard deviation as a way to improve it, which would be really hard at that process. So the switch to this, deciding to do that to the silicon just move them farther apart to where that variability, whatever variability occurs for the the ox. Actually, wait a minute, am I saying it backwards? I think it's I think it's backwards. I'm right? saying it backwards, actually. No, that's interesting. I'm saying it backwards because it's the silicon oxide that naturally is a lower standard deviation. That's right. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, so that that's how in a reliability concept, if we if we you and I were part of that process, and that was like 1947, I think the germanium one came out, and we were looking to improve it as a team. Um that would be we would look at it from that strategy standpoint and probably say, is there a way we, you know, what is the best way? easiest to either reduce standard deviation or move them farther apart. And that's what would have led us to the silicon is seeing that with manufacturing, it's lower standard deviation. Oh, that, that's interesting. And it's become 
you could argue the, the most manufacturable technology uh, ever in the history of the world. If you yeah. look at the you know, number of individual transistors on a given uh, integrated circuit these days, I mean, you're talking about billions of, of transistors that have to operate, uh, you know, very reliably in order for your PC or your phone or your electronic device that you expect to work every day, every time you push the button, right? <laughs> it's it's yeah. really fundamentally amazing, the technology and the manufacturability and the reliability that have been designed into those devices. Oh, it's unbelievable to consider the impact of transistors in our life. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, I mean, who knows how far it's going to go, right? We could end up transferring our consciousness and leaving our carbon-based computer, our brain and going to silicon, right? I mean, who knows how far it's unreal. So Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time. It's fascinating discussion. Um, I think I'm going to campaign for you to be a guest again sometime soon so we can continue to talk about these, but uh, greatly appreciated. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. Love to come back and uh, many thanks. Great. I enjoyed the discussion as well. Yeah. And to our audience, any questions or contributions or comments, feel free to, uh, you know, to reach out. Um, I'll put Wayne's contact information in there. Uh, and of course, you can comment right in the podcast episodes as well. And I hope everybody's doing well out there. Take care. Bye, Wayne.